Well, good morning, church family. It's great to see you. Yeah, thank you. I'm here for two reasons. I love you, and I ran out of money. I had to come back to work. <laughs> if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to find the second book of your Bible, the book of Exodus. As you're turning there, I do want to say a deep, heartfelt thank you for your commitment to Laurel and I in investing in us this time every summer. I do thoroughly enjoy being with you, and I miss you. I watched all of the services online. I took attendance to the back of your heads. I need to see some of you at the conclusion of the service because uh, you took a little sabbatical yourself. But we're all here now, and we're grateful for that. I'm grateful for two things specifically. Number one, the rest, the opportunity to be with family, to renew, to recharge, to plan my preaching, to think about the future of our church. There's a lot I'm going to share with you coming later this fall. We're going to start Exodus and spend some time there. And then over in September and October, uh, we're going to roll out some things that I believe will be life-altering to the future of our church, and I could not be more excited about that. So I'll hold my convictions and thoughts and the things that the Lord laid on my heart over the last 30 days as I prayed and reflected until we get to that time. But I'm equally grateful for the men of God who stood in this pulpit and preached so great. Did you not enjoy those guys and the work that they did? And I I get asked all the time, I've already booked Robert Smith for next summer, so don't worry, he's coming back. The greatest quote I got after he preached was from a little girl who went to her grandfather and said, uh, Pastor never sings in his sermons the way Robert Smith sang in his sermons. I believe he did in the 11. I'm not sure he did in the 9, but he ended with this beautiful hymn, and he sang out. And there's a reason Pastor DJ doesn't do that very often. My union card says one thing, preach, and I try to do that, and I can't do the other. But I can share with you God's Word, and I want to begin a journey with you. Now, when we think about trips— most of your trips are coming to an end. Uh, to be honest with you, like me, you're ready for the kids to go back to school. You probably are out of money as well. But I have this idea as a dad. As I age, I get more sentimental about trying to savor the time I have all eight of us together. My oldest son will turn 20 in December, and so he is very soon departing on his own life. And make no bones about it, they have to depart. They are leaving. But I've decided in the last month for our family, we're going to take our last ever vacation with the eight of us next summer. I've been waiting for our baby girl to get old enough to actually have some memories, and next summer she'll be six. And so I have commanded and demanded that all of them hold a block of time, and we're going to make our big western trip. I grew up doing this, involved in mission work, my dad led, and so I have the trip worked out in my mind. We're going to head to St. Louis and see the arch, and then we're headed into the Dakotas, and we're going to go through the Badlands and go by Mount Rushmore. And then we're going to head north to Glacier and come down from Glacier to Yellowstone, from Yellowstone to Rocky Mountain National Park, and about Denver, we're going to head home. And in my mind, it's going to be spectacular. In my mind. 
I was laying this out to my children and how we're going to do this together and spend a couple of weeks on the road. We certainly don't do this every year. We can't afford to do this every year. We do a lot of free vacations. You got a lake house, call me. But we're going to do this as a family. We're going to invest the money because I know my boys are soon going to start their own life. And this will be the last time the original eight will be together for a big family vacation. And I was explaining this to them, expecting a return in zeal and enthusiasm and gratitude. Oh, Father, thank you for working this out. And one of them said, why are we doing this? And then I explained again the answer as to why we're doing this, and they remain unconvinced. But bless God, they're going anyway. Why are we going through the book of Exodus? Why will we be in Exodus for all of this year and most of 2024? Well, let me tell you why. The second book of the Bible has one of the most amazing stories in a bigger story. You do recognize that I hold in my hand a book with 66 books written over many centuries by many different authors in at least three languages, Hebrew, Koine Greek, and Aramaic. And yet, what I've always told you is that it is one redemptive story with one hero. It's not a fragmented encyclopedia. It's not a dictionary. It's not meant to simply be a reference book, though we can use it that way. It is one story. I like to say it this way. This is God's Facebook account. This is where God says, let me reveal to you who I am because my identity as the Lord of Lords determines your identity and your purpose as the created beings in my image. So why the book of Exodus? Why now? Well, very quickly, let me give you five reasons just by way of introduction. First, we are them. The book of Exodus is about the people of God. I hope and pray that you are a member of the body of Christ. And if you are a member of the body of Christ by your own salvation, your own faith and repentance in Jesus, you by default are a part of the people of God. And the crafting and the forming of a people of God for God's own purpose and delight is found in this book. This is where they go from being a group of nomads who ended up as slaves to being the people of God. Number two, we live in their world. This journey is going to be filled with ups and downs, some wickedness and darkness like you cannot imagine. And yet, even today, we live in the same fallen world. We live in the same struggles. You're going to find yourself in the pages of the book of Exodus because people and sin have not changed. Thirdly, we serve their God. This is not an ancient story about an ancient God. It's an ancient story about an unchanging God, the God of Exodus, the God of Moses, the God of Aaron, the God of Joshua, 
is our God today. Those patriarchs, those men and women have long since passed away. And those who died in the faith are with the Lord. They are gone. Their legacy is in the Scripture. But the God of Exodus lives today. We just got through worshiping him. So learning about him through this story helps us better understand him tomorrow. Fourthly, because their story is our Scripture God in his grace led Moses to write the first five books of the Old Testament. The technical term for that is the Pentateuch, penta meaning five. The first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of your Bible are written by Moses. And therefore, this story is our scripture. And finally, we are to love their Savior If going through the book of Exodus simply makes you smarter about antiquity, we have failed. What we want to do is fall more in love with our Savior because the Lord Jesus Christ is alive and well in the story of Exodus. Now, you all know we spent the last 32 years in 1 Corinthians. And remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians? He says in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, For I do not want you to be unaware. Paul was not interested in an ignorant church. He wanted an educated church. Brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. We're about to see that happen in the book of Exodus. That's what Paul is talking about. And all were baptized into Moses. Moses was their earthly Savior, a foreshadow of a better Moses to come, who is Christ. And in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. And then Paul goes on to say, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And Paul just says it. The God serving the Israelites in their exodus was none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Christ. Jude 5, there are no chapters in Jude. That's why you always just write Jude 5. Jude 5 says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, Jude uses the specific name, the name that Mary and Joseph were to give the Christ when he took on flesh, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. So the New Testament apostles understood fully that it was God at work through Christ in Exodus, and afterward, he destroyed those who did not believe in his name. So the book of Exodus has everything to do with your Monday or your Tuesday or your Wednesday. It has everything to do with the challenge that you're facing right now. The book of Exodus has everything to do with you galvanizing your faith deeper or my prayer is for some of you to come to faith for the very first time. It gives me great joy when I meet with someone and I ask them, tell me when you came to trust Christ and they tell me a book. This happened several, several, several years ago For me, I was talking with a young woman who had come from a Catholic background, yet she did not fully understand the gospel and had been saved in our church. I said, when did you get saved? And I was expecting a good Baptist answer, a date, a time, an event, a revival, an altar. And she said, I came to faith listening to you preach through 1 John. Well, my goodness, I preached through 1 John a long time. But in her understanding, 
Faith was birthed in her as she understood who Christ was. It happened in 1 Corinthians, and it is my prayer that it happens for many, many people through the book of Exodus. So are you ready for this journey? I hope you are. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 1. For those of you fearing we may never get out of Exodus until the second coming, (laughs) I am probably going to preach on average about a chapter a week. So we have to get on our giddy up and get going. Why this journey? Great stories need a great stage. If you're a fan of movies or good novels, often some of the best movies or novels or even historical biographies take us on a journey to go somewhere. We're going to rescue someone in need. I think about the Lord of the Rings and how it's a journey of a group of people known as the Fellowship of the Ring to save their world. I think about epic journeys at times that open with a map. Remember how the Indiana Jones movies had the music in the background and the airplane flew across the map and you knew where they were going? I think about as a little boy traveling out west, to my children's chagrin, as a little boy traveling out west and reading the story of Lewis and Clark and their great journey. Men, women alike are drawn to a journey. But whenever you embark on a journey, You've got to set the stage. Chapter 1 is Moses setting the stage. It is an incredibly pregnant chapter because it tells us everything we need to know to get ready to meet Moses and to understand the exodus of God's people. I'll just quickly this morning point out four parts to the setting of this stage. First, This journey is about a specific people and a specific place. Look what your Bible says in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Now, interestingly, look up. This is the first time we see Genesis 46, verse 8, repeated exactly. You don't have time this morning, don't do it, but if you were to flip back to Genesis 46, verse 8, and you're in the translation that I'm in, which is the English Standard Translation, but any reputable English translation will show you this. Uh, Verses 8 of chapter 46 of Genesis quotes verbatim, word for word, the exact same phrase as verse 1. And here's why. Genesis and Exodus are not two fragmented stories. It's like Genesis is volume one and Exodus is volume two. And Moses knows that, which is why when he begins the book of Exodus, he starts with this link telling us about the sons of Israel. Now, we know the story of the sons of Israel from the book of Genesis. Remember the 12 brothers and one of which was anointed by God, was blessed and loved by his father and his brothers were eat up with jealousy. Remember his name? His name is Joseph. He dominates the second half of the book of Genesis. Look what the Bible says in verse 2 of Exodus. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. 
and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I, I do think it matters that you place the people and the place in the proper context of the story of God. T take a look at this timeline behind me. It's a very simplistic timeline of the redemptive story from start to end. It's nothing ingenious. You can Google it yourself. It's perfectly available and wi widely available. So when you think about the story of God's people, you find us way over to the right in the orange church and the picture of the globe. We are the people of God redeemed by Christ on mission for him, awaiting the future return of Christ. But if you'll notice, a lot has happened to get us to being the church. Of course, we celebrate the cross, the moment in history where God delivered his redemptive plan through the person of the Lord Jesus. But if you go way back to the book of Genesis, all of it is connected. In fact, interestingly, you, you don't need to turn there this morning, but the first martyr in the New Testament is named Stephen. And in the book of Acts, Stephen is called upon to give an account for the gospel. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives his famous speech. This is before he's stoned to death. And he doesn't start with Jesus. He doesn't start with the cross or the empty tomb. There's nothing wrong with telling someone about that. But he's talking to a Jewish audience. He's talking to his own people. He's talking to the people who knew Abraham, who knew of Adam and Eve, who knew of Moses and Joshua. And so he, in Acts chapter 7, recounts the entire story of the people of God. And in it, he includes the Exodus. The Bible says, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Remember that story in the book of Genesis? Now a famine came throughout all of Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb of Abraham had bought for the sum of silver for the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, that's what's happening in chapter 1, verse 6, in Exodus, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose out of Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. So that's where we are. Abraham has come and lived and died. His sons have lived and died. Generations have passed. And the Hebrews have multiplied greatly. Now, why would Moses put this in Exodus chapter 1? Because he's writing to people who aren't enslaved. Remember, reading Exodus was done the first time by people who did not experience Exodus. All the people who experienced Exodus end up dying. We'll get to that. Mm, maybe March. 
So he's writing to people who did not know slavery. And he wanted them to reconnect mentally and spiritually with their ancestors. I recently read an article on the Smithsonian website about the legacy and the history of black family reunions. I can always tell when anybody, regardless of race, is headed to a family reunion in the South because they have cheap T-shirts made with the family name on it. They're all gassing up. You know where they're going. In fact, follow them. The food's usually good. But in the black culture, especially of the South, family reunions were very prominent. And the interesting aspect of this, according to this author, is that it goes back to the abolition of slavery and the Emancipation Proclamation. One of the things that former slaves, also known as freed men, wanted was to reconnect with their family members. Here's an example of an ad ran in a paper in Tennessee in 1865 by a man who lived in Utica, New York. Sam L. Dove wishes to know of the whereabouts of his mother, Arono, and his brother, or his sisters, Maria, Naziah, and Peggy, and his brother, Edmund, who were owned by G.O. Dove of Rockingham County, Shenandoah Valley. Virginia, sold in Richmond, after which Sam L. and Edmund were taken to Nashville, Tennessee by Joe Mick. Arano was left at the Eagle Tavern in Richmond. Respectfully yours, Sam L. Dove, August 5th, 1865. Why would a man use his money to run an ad like this? Because now that his people were free, it did not mean they were connected. And there was this desire among the freed slaves to reconnect with their family. And the legacy of that turned into a strong tie to family reunions. This is what Moses is doing. Moses is saying, I need to tell you about your people because you're free today. You, 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 you're free today, but your people were not always free. And I want you to connect with them because I want you to understand that your God was their God and their exodus has something to say to your life. And the interesting thing about the first section is how it ends. Look with me again in Exodus chapter 1, beginning, if you will, in verse 8. The Bible says these words, excuse me, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is also the verse that represents our preschool ministry at church at the mill. Why? Why did they multiply so quickly? Why are these people flourishing? We, we know that when God chose Abraham, he did not pick Abraham because of Abraham's own genetic superiority, because Abraham had some aptitude that the rest of the world has. In fact, what you find as you study Israel is that God actually chose them because they were nomadic nobodies. He wanted to display his glory. So why is this people flourishing, who were almost killed by a famine that killed so many during this time, about 1,450 years before Jesus. That's where we are. David will come about 1,000 years before Jesus. Well, I'll tell you why. What did God tell Abraham in the book of Genesis? Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, the name's not great yet, and they've not yet received word as to how they're going to bless the rest of the world. That's going to come to a virgin girl who's descended from them in Bethlehem. Glory. 
But until then, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. You don't become a great nation of people without people. You don't get a lot of people without a high birth rate, without babies. And so God is blessing the Hebrew children, a place and a people. Secondly, this journey is about the principal problem of humanity. The stage is set. The conflict is given. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. You want to talk about a pregnant passage. Who did not know Joseph. Let me read it again. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt. That would be a Pharaoh. Who did not know Joseph. Now, it's not as if Joseph is some nobody. Joseph's not your, if you'll allow me the pun, your average Joe. I just made that up. That's <laughs> so what happens. You get a little rest. Your mind gets fresh. Joseph's not your average Joe. Remember, especially in the northern kingdom of Egypt, which is along the delta of the Nile River, Pharaoh in Joseph's day places him second in command over all of that area, meaning that he had the wherewithal to make sure the entire civilization in that region of the world lived. This is a significant figure. This is a George Washington. This is a Benjamin Franklin. This is a Martin Luther King. This is a historically important, significant man. And this Pharaoh didn't know him. Now, the underlying meaning, what Moses is trying to stress, is that to know Joseph was to know Joseph's God. To know Joseph was to see Joseph's Ability to interpret dreams, to discern the future of what needed to happen. And this Pharaoh was ignorant of all of that. I want you to know that the greatest evil comes when people have no knowledge of God or his people. In fact, the scripture teaches us this over and over again. To not be mindful of God in heaven is to set yourself up for doom and destruction. Look around you today at what the current social and political debates are. And what you find is that they seem so foolish to us. And it is because the people making them do not know the Lord God. They don't know him. Now, this protects me from becoming anger or bitter it reminds me that the mission is still unaccomplished. But this is how you get to a point where you look at that which is reality and you deny it or you reduce truth to your own subjective preference or opinion. Without the knowledge of God and his work in your life, without knowledge, if you'll allow me to use the text of Joseph, you set yourself up for absolute, 100% demise and destruction. Now, interestingly, alongside of this lack of knowledge of God, paralleled the beginning of people of God suffering. We're seeing that today. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 9. 
And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. He looked around. He said, they outnumber us. Verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities and Pithom and Ramses. And, but the more they were oppressed, these are the Hebrews, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now, we have no indication here that the people of Israel were leading a coup or attempting a rebellion or were persecuting Egyptians. They were simply being persecuted because God was prospering them, because he was blessing them. Remember that the next time you hear of a Christian suffering of no fault of their own. This is not a new pattern. When you, when you choose not to acknowledge God or you hate his ways, by default, you will hate his people. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. Now, the Bible goes on to tell us what happens in verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Now, I want you to listen to the word work, W-O-R-K in the English translation. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Moses, why do you keep using the word work? Your literature teacher would tell you word selection is better for writing. Don't keep using the same verb over and over again. That's why good writers are married to their thesaurus. It's because in the Hebrew, the word work is a part of a larger derivative that can mean work, do, serve, or live under. It's a fascinating thing that you won't see in the English, but you do see in the original language. This is what's going to happen. God's going to take a people who work, do, live, serve, task, toil, and there are some derivations of this word that mean worship, who worship under a Pharaoh, and guess what he's going to do? He's going to set them free? Mm -mm. He's going to set them free spiritually. You know what that means? It means you're not free. It means you're free to work, serve, live, toil under the lordship of a good God. He's switching their allegiance. Thirdly, this is a journey about pain and persecution. If you are not experiencing pain in your life, you have before and you will most certainly experience it in the future. Due to the scale and the growth of our church, we're going to talk a lot about that in September and October, but due to the scale and the growth of our church, it's just created from a percentage standpoint that now almost a daily, but almost certainly on a weekly basis, I get reports of people who are experiencing the most difficult journey they've ever embarked on. Somebody has always just been diagnosed with cancer in our church. Someone has almost always just lost a precious baby to a miscarriage. Someone has buried a loved one weekly in our church. And one of the things that I'm reminded of when I watch the people of God suffer, when I watch us go through pain in this life, I'm reminded of how important it is for us not to forget 
That's not new either. In other words, until the Lord returns, pain and persecution are a part of this journey. Now, we don't go look for it. And certainly when we're under it, we can ask the Lord for relief from it. Read your Psalms. Deliver me, O Lord, begins many of the Psalms where David and others are crying out for refuge and reinforcement, for some type of ability to be released from the sorrow and the pain. Yet what we find is that in the pain and the persecution of attempting to live according to the God of Abraham is where God unfolds his redemptive glory in HD, in high definition. So we already know by verses 8, by verse 8, that the people of God are being dealt with shrewdly. Look how it begins to ramp up in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other one Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool. Ladies, I don't even know how that happens. But apparently in antiquity, there was a way in which they would set themselves in squatting position and give birth. We'll just leave it at that. I got nothing for you. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other one Pua, when you serve as the midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. That's infanticide. But if it is a daughter, you shall live. Why? Because in antiquity, you could marry the daughters off. They would be melded into the Egyptian culture. They did not have the value and the power that women have and enjoy today in our civilization. So they were of no threat. Women don't become soldiers in ancient Egypt. She shall live. Now look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. I often use these types of conflicts to remind you of a good biblical principle. The Bible says you and I are to obey authority. That means if you disobey the speed limit and you get a ticket, it's your fault. You should pay the ticket or attend an online course as I did during sabbatical. <laughs> For doing all of 41 miles an hour in downtown Woodruff. I was really living it up. <laughs> so I'm on an online course with a bunch of 17-year-olds, <laughs> and we have to communicate in a group chat to prove we watched the course. I was the only one with proper grammar. <laughs> By the end, a few people even quoted me. I told Laurel, had the class been two days, I'd have been class president by the end. But I broke the law, got the ticket, took the course. By God's grace, I've been set free. <laughs> we are to obey authority. And we should be citizens who obey the laws. We should be honest and fair with our business dealings, our taxes. We should be people who other people look to and say, I may not know all of what Christians believe, but she is a good neighbor. He is a good student. 
She is a good employee. They are honest and ethical and right, and they do what is asked of them. Up until the point, anyone in human authority commands that we disobey God. Then we disobey man. We disobey man. Before we ever meet the hero of Exodus, Moses, the first two heroes are two women. They're the first two Jewish names enshrined in Scripture in the book of Exodus. Besides the names of the tribes, who were the names of the 12 sons of Israel, the first two people who kick off this great story of deliverance are two midwives who after this disappear from Scripture but stood in front of an Egyptian king, were given a direct order knowing full well he had the power to take their life if they disobeyed. And the Bible says they feared God more than they feared him. Now, fearing God is something to be understood. I love this quote by one commentator. To fear God does not mean being afraid of him in general, but being afraid of the consequences of disobeying him. I will never intentionally, permanently, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually attempt to harm my children. But that does not mean they should not fear me. But I don't want them to fear me. I want their fear of me to be the fear of the consequences of doing what is contrary to what their mother and I have instructed them to do. And these midwives feared God. They knew full well he that Pharaoh could end their life. But they also knew that after their life ended, they had to stand up in front of a greater king who had the ability to give them eternal life, and they wouldn't do it. Now, the persecution and the pain only increases. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. He looked around, seen all these boys running around. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can come to them. They basically said, we don't have to tell you the truth in this situation because we're standing before the Lord. Now, often biblical writers and ethicists say, well, were they lying and is that righteous? Again, you have to recognize in times of war and in great conflict, there's always deception. A little bit later in the service today, we will pray over a family going to a place that is dangerous. So before we pray, we're going to cut the live feed. We're cutting the live feed to protect them. We're intentionally holding information to protect someone. We have missionaries all over the world who say, I'm coming to your country to teach or to dig wells or to be an engineer. When ultimately that is their platform. They could teach, dig wells, and be an engineer here in the United States and have a much easier life. They use that as their platform to get in and to get the gospel. I think about Rahab misleading and guiding the people later in the book of Joshua. It's the same idea. These midwives were put in a situation where were they going to obey God or were they going to obey man? And they obeyed God and God honored them for it. And when Pharaoh knew the midwife strategy wouldn't work, he went from infanticide to straight up genocide. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 19, excuse me, verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. You see, finally, church, this is a story 
of prosperity and protection. Look how it ends. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. There's a great word there. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. Now listen to what Pharaoh tells the Egyptian citizenry. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast him into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let that sink in for a minute. This is not special ops. This isn't wicked gynecologists. This isn't misguided, lost, and dark places like abortion clinics. This is the Pharaoh saying to all of Egypt, you have my command. If you see a Hebrew boy, throw him in the Nile. The river washed the filth of Egypt downstream. The river was a place where everything went to disappear And it was a place so mysterious, the Egyptians often worshipped the river. And this sets the stage for chapter 2. Because what we're going to see is that every time wickedness comes up against the people of God, God steps in and sends a Savior. And I might remind you that Pharaoh had a picture of the Hebrew boys being destroyed by water. But I know a king who's going to destroy the Egyptian soldier boys by water in just a few chapters. And when we think about this, I remind you of a tweet by John Piper. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. You see, I want you to go on this journey because in this epic, true story of redemption, you are going to see how God delivers his people and his faithfulness can be counted on today. I hope you'll go with me on this journey. I hope you'll be faithful in your attendance and when sickness or travel pulls you away, whether you be here live or online, I hope you'll use every platform we offer and every platform that exists we use to keep these messages fresh, updated, where you can hear them and stay in the word of God. How could you do an invitation to beginning a journey. Well, I think of only one. Perhaps the best way to start a journey is to pray for people who are going on a journey. We have a young couple and a young woman. We're going to commission this morning. In order to do that, as I've said, for safety and security reasons, we're going to cut our live feed. So let me pause so we can do that.